Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet them, greet them, treat them, and street them. Today's date is March 22nd, 2023, and I'm your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Boom, Boom, Boom. Another app gets bust. POCUS in the emergency department for biliary disease. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Casey Parker. He is a rural generalist that includes in his practice emergency medicine, anesthesia, and critical care. He is also now a fully-fledged sonologist. Casey currently splits his time between Broome, a small rural hospital in the remote section of Kimberley in Western Australia, and a large tertiary emergency department in sunny Perth. He's also been on a number of SGEM episodes. Welcome back to the SGEM, Casey. G'day, Ken. It's really great to be back representing the Southern Hemisphere on this awesome podcast. <laughs> well, do you have any news from down under or do you want to dive right into a case? Well, actually, Ken, pertinent to this podcast, I've recently taken up a job as the director of ultrasound training for my rural community. And so this paper is really relevant to me and my students. And, you know, I'm a totally hopeless sonophile and a really high risk of confirmation bias when I read a paper like this from one of your excellent colleagues over there in Ontario. I like how you refer to it as a sonophile, because when somebody says ultrasonographer, it just makes me feel like an average sonographer, because nah, I'm not very ultra at it. I, I can do the basics, but boy, I know that you have much greater skills than I do. Let's get on to a case, though. What did you bring today? Well, today's case, Ken, we're going to talk about a 40-year-old woman who presented to the emergency department complaining of epigastric pain and nausea for the past 24 hours. The wonderful junior doctor has performed a physical examination and done some blood work. She has some right upper quadrant tenderness on palpation and an elevated CRP, which is, of course, 42. Her white blood cell count and liver function tests are all plumb normal. Now, the very efficient young doctor has arranged a formal ultrasound, but this won't be done until later this afternoon after a solid six hours fasting. As luck would have it, though, the admitting surgeon is currently wandering around the ED seeing another patient. Now, as the supervising ED physician, you've done a few training courses and you're keen to try out your new enhanced sono skills. It seems like a good case to try and decide if this patient has significant biliary disease, such as acute cholecystitis or maybe an impacted gallstone. A focused biliary ultrasound in the ED or a bust may be all that is required to guide the surgeon's decision-making for this patient. Do they need surgery, an ERCP, or just a bit of analgesia and non-operative care? And for those who may have missed it, Casey said a CRP of 42, so a C-reactive protein of 42. And 42 is the answer to life. We're just wondering what the question is. So let's get some background information. The SGEM has reviewed the use of point-of-care ultrasound, or POCUS, for a variety of conditions in the emergency department. And this includes ultrasounds for small bowel obstructions, shoulder dislocations, appendicitis, endotracheal tube placement, retinal detachment, skull fractures, acute heart failure, renal colic, acute abdominal aneurysms, and lumbar punctures. What can't an ultrasound do, Casey? But one thing that we have not covered yet is the diagnostic utility of using POCUS for diagnosing acute biliary colic. 
you know, Ken, the reason I do a lot of ultrasound, it, it's kind of like cheating when you go to work. It's kind of like lifting back the lid and seeing what's going on. Now, ultrasound is usually the first-line imaging modality for the diagnosis of acute biliary disease. As demonstrated on the list of SGM episodes, the ED-performed, clinician-performed ultrasound, such as POCUS, has been increasingly popular over the last few years. Many small trials have compared the accuracy of POCUS compared to the gold standard of a radiology-performed ultrasound. And the literature on the question of POCUS for diagnosing acute biliary disease or patients that are coming in with what seems like biliary colic tends to compare the diagnostic accuracy of the sonography in each department. Little is known about the actual decision-making process after POCUS evaluation. So Casey, what's the clinical question we're going to try to answer on today's episode of the SGEM? So Ken, we're going to ask, when compared to point-of-care ultrasound, what is the value of a formal radiology-performed ultrasound in terms of surgical decision-making in acute biliary disease? And the reference? The author is Hildson et al. The title of the paper is Point-of-Care Biliary Ultrasound in the Emergency Department, or BUST, Predicts Final Surgical Management Decisions. And this is from Trauma Surgery Acute Care in October 22, I think. All right, let's run through the PCOT. What was the population? So these were all adult emergency department patients older than 18 years with abdominal pain whom the emergency physician felt had biliary disease after performing history physical examination and POCUS. And they excluded patients if surgery was completed prior to the formal ultrasound imaging, failure to gain consent, or age less than 18 years. What was the intervention? The intervention in this trial was the surgical decision which was either to offer surgery, to perform bile duct clearance with either an ERCP or an MRCP, or no surgery, which was based upon the clinical laboratory and the POCUS data. The bus scans were performed by one of 11 specially trained ED physicians, and there were 20 surgeons, including three acute care surgeons, four colorectal surgeons, four hepatobiliary surgeons, and three surgery oncology fellows, and three bariatric surgeons in this hospital. And so they were comparing the BUST or the point-of-care ultrasound, so the BUST, and they, what were they comparing it to? So the comparison was the surgical decision that was then made after a formal radiology ultrasound had been performed. And so I'll actually put the diagram that they have from this design into the show notes so you can see how people would present with abdominal pain. The physician would think, okay, I think this might be biliary and perform the ultrasound and then give the surgeon, you know, the information. Here's the history. Here's the physical exam finding. Here's the lab findings. Here's what I found when I did the bust exam and then ask the surgeon, okay, what would you do? And then they send the patient off for a formal radiologic ultrasound or RUS, and then the surgeon again reevaluates the case and decides what to do, and they compare the decision-making process from before they had the formal ultrasound but just had the bust to after they had the formal ultrasound. So what was the outcome? What was the primary outcome of interest? So just before we jump in there, Ken, I just want to point out that radiological ultrasound shares an acronym with rodents of unusual size, which I don't know if the authors put that in specifically, but I just love that in this paper. Anyway, 
Do do you think people know where RUS has come from? What movie? Well, I hope so. If they've been I listening so to this too. podcast. <laughs> so that is, of course, from The Princess Bride. They're the giant rodents that live in the flame swamp. I was going to say, if they don't know where that reference comes from, it would be inconceivable. <laughs> indeed, indeed. All right. So the primary outcome, just to get back to the podcast, was the percentage of patients in which the management chained after the RUS was performed. And their secondary outcomes. So they had a number. They included the clinical decisions based on the different type of surgical subspecialty, the biochemical markers. They looked at the vital signs and also the patient's demographics. All right. And what type of study was this? So this is an observational prospective cohort study performed in a tertiary care center in London, Ontario, Canada, which is your part of the world, I believe, Ken. Which is where I am right now recording this podcast. All right. The author's conclusions were, quote, this prospective study has shown that in the vast majority of cases, the additional information afforded by formal radiologic ultrasound does not alter clinical management. Point-of-care biliary ultrasound has been demonstrated to be reliable in the diagnosis of acute biliary disease and offers a safe and efficient diagnostic pathway for patients presenting in the emergency room. All right, let's run through the quality checklist for observational studies, Casey. Do you think this study addressed a clearly focused or pocused issue? It does indeed, Ken. Did the authors use the appropriate method to answer their question? Yes, and this is a novel approach to this question, and I particularly love the use of the alluvial diagrams that really map out the patient's journey through this trial. Was the cohort recruited in an acceptable way? Yes, they did They did assess consecutive patients with abdominal pain in the emergency department, though it was at the discretion of the ED physician to decide whether or not they thought POCUS was indicated. And was the exposure accurately measured to minimize bias? Yes, it was. And how about the outcome? Was it accurately measured? It was. And have the authors identified all important confounding factors? I'm going to say unsure to that one, Ken. The most likely confounder would be the surgeon's confidence and risk tolerance with regards to their belief in bedside or POCUS ultrasound. In a small, single-center study like this one, that could be a potentially significant confounder. And was the follow-up of subjects complete enough? Yes, it was. How would you characterize the precision of the results? They seem pretty good, and we have really good individual patient-level narrative data to look at what actually happened. Do you, Casey Parker, believe the results? Yes, I do. Can the results be applied to the local population? Once again, I'm unsure on this. This was a single-centre study in which the local surgical culture does play quite a big part and may limit the external validity of this data. But I'll save that for the nerdy section, Ken. Oh, good. Yeah, because I've worked in a number of hospitals you know, rural hospitals uh, doing, uh, you know, relief work for emergency departments and run into a lot of different surgeons. And there is a different culture depending on where you're working. Mm. So do the results of this study fit with other available evidence? Oh, yes, they do. Although this is a slightly different way of asking a novel question about the use of POCUS. And how about the funding of the study? 
there are no conflicts de declared and, and there was no funding grants involved. All right, let's run through the results. They recruited 103 consecutive patients, of which 100 were included in their analysis. The mean age was 50 years, and the decision was to admit 68 patients for surgery, 21 for ductal clearance, and 11 for no surgery. What was the key result? The key result was that the surgical plan was not changed after a formal ultrasound was performed in 90% of the patients. All right, and how about that primary outcome? So the initial plan, based upon the ED POCUS scan, was changed 10% of the time after the radiological ultrasound was performed. And you can check out the beautiful alluvial diagram just to understand what that means. Yeah, maybe you could explain what an alluvia diagram is because this is a relatively new concept to many listeners probably. Yes, it's a really nice way of presenting the data in this study where we're looking at how patients started with the POCUS plan and how they went through their journey of diagnosis in the ED and where they ended up at the far end. So it starts with all the all the patients that were offered surgery after a POCUS plan, how many ended up to get the final outcome of actually getting surgery. And then you look at the patients that cross from one group to the other. And there's a little bit of crossover, but most of them stayed in their lane. And this diagram is beautiful. If you've ever flown in a helicopter over one of those lovely glacial streams up in the mountains, this sort of looks like one of those. Is that where they get this uh, term from, alluvia? Um, is that where it comes from? I imagine so. I think alluvial means that, like, isn't that what you get when you're sifting for gold in the in the glacial rivers, that you're sort of looking for uh, something to do with the flow of water, isn't it? Now, now you're making me think of an Austin Powers movie. Gold. I love gold. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's those beautiful things that you see in the strata, right? So you see the strata of the stream flowing through the sediment. Mm. And uh, I'll, what I'll do is I'll put a picture in the show notes and you can see how they flow and I'll put a link to what alluvia diagrams means. All right. Um, for their secondary outcomes, they had things on clinical decisions based on surgical subspecialties, biochemical markers vital signs and patient demographics. And I'll put some additional information in the show notes for those secondary outcomes. But I want to I wanna talk nerdy with you, Casey. You ready to talk nerdy with me? Oh, I'm so ready to talk nerdy, Ken. Let's go. Oh, let's talk nerdy. We have five points and you're going to start with the first one. So my first point is about the surgical decision-making. This really is the crunch point of this trial because the whole thing is based upon the surgeon's decision, both before and after the POCUS scan and then after the formal radiological scan. And it's really difficult to separate the surgeon's decisions when the surgeon is going to know that the patient is actually going to undergo both the ED scan as well as the formal radiological scan. So it's kind of a Schrodinger's cat scenario a more conservative surgeon who might not trust POCUS might have a more higher level of confidence if they know that they're going to go on and have a radiological scan anyway. So they might be a bit more cowboy and shooting from the hip based on their POCUS scan, knowing that there's a safety backup in place. So they could have separated some of these issues out if they'd done a proper like full-blown RCT, provided the surgeon with the report, but not identify whether that report came from the ED or from the formal radiological side, and then follow the patients along clinically to see if there are any proper patient-orientated outcomes that may have differed. But this would have been a much bigger and more difficult trial and tricky to say about the ethics approval in that scenario. All right. The second nerdy point we wanted to talk about was external validity. 
This was a small study, relatively small. 100 patients were analyzed, and it was a single tertiary university-affiliated hospital in Canada, right here in London, Ontario. The surgical decision-making in this particular hospital may not reflect practices in larger or even smaller, more rural emergency departments or be appropriate to a different country. So whilst this trial is useful, I would want to see it repeated at a larger scale in other healthcare systems and other hospital locations. So look at it at other urban centers, go out to a community setting, go to a rural setting or a critical access hospital where you're going to be referring these patients in before stating that it's a truly valid strategy. It's also important to note that the 11 emergency physicians performing the POCUS were fellowship trained in that technique. And so it is operator dependent. And so if you've had extra training, you have a fellowship in doing POCUS, you could have a much better diagnostic accuracy than maybe the average sounder like me in the community. But that that's getting a little bit into nerdy point number three. I'll shoot on to nerdy point number three then, Ken, which is really the difference between POCUS and the radiological ultrasound for acute biliary disease. At the end of the day, this trial is comparing an ultrasound versus another ultrasound. So why would there be a difference between the two when it's essentially the same technology? And the answer is probably around the experience of the operator and the detection of subtle gallstones, particularly the ones down in the neck of the gallbladder or down in the common bile duct. Now, these can be really tricky. And there have been a few trials that show that sonographers' personal sensitivity for these types of difficult stones goes up dramatically with experience. And there was a a trial done by Ricks et al. 2006 in the Scandinavian Journal of Gastroenterology that showed that experienced sonographers who'd done more than 10,000 scans were twice as likely to detect common bile duct stones than novice sonographers who'd done less than 2,000 scans. So when you think about it, maybe this should be a comparison not between POCUS and formal radiology, but between novice sonographers or less experienced sonographers and more advanced sonographers. It's really nice to remove that sort of interdepartmental conflict that we often get into with these sorts of studies. This is not really about ED versus radiology. And there's a really unfortunate and large amount of POCUS literature out there where we compare one group against the other in small case series. And it's really not a true dichotomy. I believe that a really good and experienced ED doc, such as some of my colleagues that I work with, would be just as good as any radiological service. After all, the stone still exists, no matter who it is that happens to be holding the probe. Yeah, the truth is out there, right? And and it doesn't matter who the sonographer is. That stone is or is either there or not there. The real you know thing is whether or not you can identify it. And I would be a little bit concerned, you know, looking at those numbers. Could I get more than ten thousand scans of gallbladders if I worked in a critical access hospital? My skills may be trained up and may be great after, you know, doing a course with you, Casey, being trained by you or some other ultrasound course. But then when I go out and practice, will I have the opportunity to maintain those skills? That's always a question I have if it's going to take so many scans. I just may not get that many people coming in. Yeah. And Ken, I've just done a three-year intensive diploma in ultrasound, and I think I'm up to about 1,500 abdominal scans. So I'm still in that group that's less than 2,000 after three years of doing this full-time. So it's really hard to get that experience. Yeah. And so, you know, there could be a role for, you know, continuing to maintain your skills or uh, using virtual technology in some way to uh, help you with that. 
All right, let's get to nerdy point number four. And this is about selection bias. It is possible that there was some selection bias in this study design as patients were only included if the treating emergency physician felt, hey, I think that person might have biliary disease after their clinical presentation, biochemical markers, and doing the POCUS exam or the BUST study. So we already have a select group of patients where the diagnosis was already reasonably clear to the surgeon because we don't make decisions usually just on one point of information. It takes place in a context. There's a clinical picture that's happening. So it's not surprising that in this group, the emergency physicians doing the POCUS exam got it right 90% of the time. It may be useful to know what the role of biliary POCUS is in less selected patients. So, you know, patients that just come in with a, hey, I've got some abdominal pain and they're pointing to above the belly button region or it's in the right upper quadrant area at triage and then include all of them in the trial. Because, you know, patients don't come in with a big label. You lift up their shirt and it says, hey, I have biliary colic. You know, it's biliary disease. You know, when you go to put on that probe, it's not that easy, right? They come in saying, I have pain or it hurts when I eat or I've been vomiting or I've been feeling unwell. They don't come in with the label that says what their diagnosis is. And so the true value of POCUS may be finding the patients where pain is attributed to gallstones and then have no biliary abnormality found on POCUS, thus forcing the ED team to, hmm, maybe I've got the wrong diagnosis because there are other things that can cause badness in the belly outside of the gallbladder. Cool. I'll move on to nerdy point number five, Ken. This is about baseline differences between the groups. So although this isn't a randomized control trial, it's important to look at that baseline characteristics in each group and think, are we looking at the same people in each of these groups? Yeah, that's an important point. We want to make sure that we're comparing same group of people. And there was a big difference in the baseline bilirubin levels between the groups. And this makes sense. If you're jaundice, then we know there's a much higher likelihood of having a stone. I mean, that's sort of the end of the bed. Hey, they kind of look yellow to me. Do they look yellow to you? Right? That they're going to have a stone or some other lesion obstructing their biliary tree. Uh, these are potentially sicker patients and they need comprehensive imaging when BUST is not really going to achieve that. Yeah, so maybe these patients are not the ones that we should be including in this trial of the BUST protocol because it's unlikely that a surgeon will manage them just based on an ED ultrasound alone. Because if you're jaundiced and you've got belly pain, it's very likely the surgeon's going to manage you with either an MRCP or an ERCP in the first instance to sort out the obstruction before thinking about surgery or other conservative care that may be an option. So so you're saying if they're jaundice and stuff, they're either on or off the bus. Exactly. That's right, Ken. <laughs> All right. Well, this trial uh, has excellent granular data on the patients where the treatment decision changed because of the radiologic ultrasound. Mostly it came down to the difficulty in examining that common bile duct accurately. And you mentioned that about how many scans you really have to do to get comfortable with saying, hey, is there a tiny little stone in there? Can I pick up a stone? Am I missing a stone in that common bile duct? That's, that's where it's really difficult, isn't it, Casey? Yeah, that, that's exactly right, Ken. In, in my experience working as a sinologist is it's that the distal CBD 
and the distal one's right in the neck where the neck of the gallbladder hooks around. It's usually just sitting in there behind the duodenum and you can't get a great pick it of it. So it takes time and a lot of technique to really pick up those stones. And it may not be the best use of the average ED doctor's time to spend half an hour rolling patients around and trying to find those little stones. We should probably leave that to the radiologist in the jaundice patient. Yeah, for for flow purposes, it might be, okay, we're just going to send them off to another department and get the uh, radiologic ultrasound, and we're we're going to continue on seeing other undifferentiated patients with or without abdominal pain. Indeed. All right, well, we are fortunate to have Dr. Rob Leeper, one of the authors of this study and a friend of the SGEM, on the show. Rob, what would you like to add to our critical appraisal on how you think we should be applying this study? So radiology-based ultrasound is not as available as you would think in a publicly funded healthcare system like Canada. In the ER after midnight, after 5 p.m., on weekends, heck, as an outpatient, you can wait weeks. So one very simple binary ultrasound finding is all that is required to make a surgical decision, the presence or absence of gallstones, and it's actually exactly analogous in that binary fashion to a positive or negative fast. Now, obviously, many patients who come to the ER are presenting with complex problems that have complex ultrasound needs. However, there's a very common patient presentation where BUST applies quite well. There's two basic principles. The first, they've got to have a really nice clinical story for biliary pain. You know, meal-associated, severe, in the right of a quadrant, goes into your back. And the second is, they really do need to have a very reassuring set of labs that make bile duct pathology unlikely. So a normal bilirubin and a relatively normal panel of liver enzymes. In this patient population, a common presentation, the only thing that a surgeon needs to know from the ultrasound is whether or not there are stones. If there are not, then surgery is off the table. If there are, then with that clinical feature and that lab profile, the remainder of our decision-making about intervention is independent of any other ultrasound findings. And it hinges entirely on factors like patient fitness, OR availability, surgeon preference, etc. In other words, the ball is now in our court. I think it's a hugely important thing for EM providers to be able to get patients to a point where the rest of the treatment is undeniably in the hands of the surgeon. And this paper demonstrates that for one very common emergency room presentation, a simple binary bedside test can achieve that degree of certainty. Thanks, Rob, for giving us a little bit more information about your study and how it could be applied clinically. Going to go back to Casey here. Can you comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions? Yeah, Ken, I think we generally agree with the author's conclusions. This study does show that in this hospital system, ED performed ultrasound of the biliary tree by fellowship-trained emergency physicians was sufficient to guide surgical decisions in 90% of cases. If we were to exclude the patients who had biochemical jaundice, then even more cases would have been adequately imaged with the ED ultrasound alone. 
However, this study would need to be replicated on a larger scale in different emergency department systems to make a recommendation about the role of ED-performed ultrasound versus radiologic scans. All right, can you give us an SGM bottom line? Yes, Ken. So in non-jaundice patients with suspected acute biliary disease, an emergency physician trained in biliary ultrasound can correctly inform surgical decision-making in most cases. And can you resolve the case that you presented at the start of the podcast? Okay, so our emergency physician performs a focused biliary ultrasound, which shows a gallbladder full of stones, some gallbladder wall thickening, and a positive sonographic Murphy sign. The team can make the diagnosis of acute cholecystitis and refer to the inpatient surgical team and commence antibiotics straight away. And so how are you going to take this BUST study and apply it clinically? Well, I believe that ED doctors can and should be trained in the use of biliary ultrasound to help guide their diagnosis in the workup of patients with abdominal pain. They do need to consider the clinical context and receive appropriate training in order to make this accurate and timely diagnosis. This would be like many other medical conditions where we rarely rely on one single data point to inform our subsequent care. And so what are you going to tell the patient? I mean, you're sitting there scanning them, so you've got some time, you've got some jelly on the belly, you're going to be pushing on their right upper quadrant. What are you going to tell them when you're doing that scan? You know, Ken, that's funny that you say that because I reckon the reason that sonographers are so good at diagnosis is because they spend half an hour longer with the patient getting the history right and then do the scan. So it's quite possible that there's a bias there too. But I would be telling this patient, your ultrasound, in combination with the blood tests and the clinical picture, all suggests that you have an acute gallbladder inflammation. This is usually treated with pain medicine and antibiotics. Some patients do need to undergo surgery to remove their gallbladder, and we'll discuss these findings with our excellent surgical colleagues. We'll take good care of you and discuss the plan further. Okay, it's time for the Keener Contest. There were so many correct answers. I couldn't believe it. This is one of the most correctly answered Keener contest questions in the history of the SGEM. And we were just asking, hey, what would you be handed if you asked for an eye gel in a certain country? And, uh, you know, an eye gel in German means hedgehog. And so you might, instead of being handed a superglottic device, if you were practicing in Germany, ask for an eye gel and get a hedgehog. Amazing. So many people got this answer right. I will list the correct winner in the show notes. Uh, Casey, what's the question this week? I think it's a little tougher. Yeah, this one's a bit tougher, Ken. Uh, The question this week is, what is the speed of sound in human soft tissue used in medical ultrasound devices? And I'm a nice guy, so I'll let you get it to within 50 meters per second for a correct answer. There are going to be people doing a lot of Googling. All right. So if you know what the speed of sound in human soft tissue is to within 50 meters per second. Now, is this going to be prices right rules? Closest one without going over? I don't know if we'll be that accurate. But anyways, if you know the answer, then send an email to the SGM at gmail.com. Put Keener in the subject line so I can identify who's answering those questions. And I will send you a cool skeptical prize. And hey, I just ordered a whole bunch of new skeptical prizes. So if you've won before, I have a new type of skeptical prize. And if you want to know what they are, you got to play to win and you got to win to receive one of these cool skeptical prizes. Well, thanks, Casey, for helping us critically appraise another 
Pocus Paper. Well, thanks for having me on again, Ken. You know, my two favorite things in the world are ultrasound and talking nerdy. So you've managed to <laughs> make my day. So thanks for having oh, me back. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, all we need to do now is have you read the SGEM tagline. Take us out. Okay, re- listeners, remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next week. Who one rides a bus, and another comes on, and another comes on.